0: There seem to be two extremes with the Reform Reconstructionist movement. Artificial worth as well as artificial worthlessness. It's like everybody's trying to gain their self-worth from something other than being made in the image of God. Everyone in a recon group is looking to be the next Kelvin, the next Zwingli, the next Knox, the next big historical giant to put their mark on the world. And anything less than that pursuit... Or that achievement is laziness. They'll say otherwise. I mean, they'll say, for example, that, you know, mothers have the highest calling even though they technically do nothing compared to, like, the big giants. That's a whole other story anyway. Stuff like reach your fullest potential. Which isn't bad. Like, who isn't going to say that to anybody? But it's to the extent. It's to the extent that it's done. You know, mental illnesses are not illnesses until it's excessive. You know, like once in a while everyone's depressed, but like depression is when it's an excess. Redeeming the time is a big one too, which means making up for lost time as if they had any time to begin with and as if it wasn't a gift to them. A big one. You only have so many days on this earth. Don't be sidelined. I actually wrote a song about that growing up. It's called Life in the Sidelines. You will never hear it. (laughs) Oh, here's another one. You are expendable as a, as a doctrine, you're expendable. What? Jesus didn't teach that. He actually taught that his eye is on the sparrow and you're better than many sparrows. And you know, the lilies of the field, they don't toil or spin or whatever, but God takes care of them. You're better than they are. Every hair of your head is numbered. Your tears are in God's bottle. There's no doctrine of expendability. Now, I know what they think they're getting at. They're saying that, you know, if you don't praise the Lord, if you don't worship him, if you don't obey him, then even the rocks will cry out. Eventually, he doesn't need you to be praised. That is true. He doesn't need anybody. But he did choose you. And that's where the whole artificial worthlessness part comes in. Because they're saying you don't have the worth that you were born with as being an image bearer of God until you perform this formula over here and then essentially at the same time they artificially place a form of worth upon you that's not where you get your value from they say well if you do all these things then you're worthy if you are not sidelined whatever their definition of it is if you are not wasting your time the way that we say time should be used it's an artificial value system Your value is supposed to come from you are human made in the image of God, and God has put his seal of blessing on you. He said you were worthy. There is nothing else that you need to be worthy. Oh, here's a big one I hear. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Yeah, okay, whatever, but solution to what? What's the problem? Government breakdown? Is that the problem? So if you're not part of that solution, you're part of the problem of that solution? Is the only problem what government is throwing at you? It's never internal. It's all external issues. What about solutions to hospitality? Lack of opening your home. What about solutions to pride? What about solutions to not being patient with people? What about solutions to being afraid to speak the truth? What about solutions to conjuring up a false sense of unity by covering sin up? What about solutions to gossip and talking about things when you should be more gracious? but that's just character building stuff that's just like the fruit of the spirit stuff the milk of the word stuff what are you going to do with all that self-cleaning up afterwards as if this is just merely self-cleaning up the problem is you think that any of this cleans you up how about it's an attempt to get to know your father more for better communion with him driven by the hope of what he's promised you This isn't at the expense of community service. we have been through this. But how is whipping government entities into submission through noise and force, the real stuff, compared to the Christian walk? Compared to a transformed soul that reflects God? What is reality to you? What part of this world is a shadow did you miss? It's like, oh, but there's a new heaven and a new earth that's coming. So it's also new earth, you know? Yeah, but it's also new heaven you know yeah but they don't refer to heaven as heaven like as in something that we should look forward to it's it's like a a, a crutch almost it's like I've heard so many times it's not just in the by and by coming it's and you know they like drop the voice down to be all sarcastic it's not just in the by and by it's it's also now and here so you're kind of just mocking heaven okay fine but let's break this down you are way too focused on the earth part number one Number two, as if you are going to make every knee bow and every tongue confess. That's the verse you keep going to. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, but they will do so at the name of Christ. Did you miss that part? Yes, the name of Christ signifies that he is king, that he is judge, that he is lawgiver. Okay, but it also kind of means that he saves too. But the problem is that they will say that the whole every knee will bow and tongue confess thing at the name of christ is more along the lines of begrudgingly begrudgingly they will go ahead and just admit through gnashed teeth that okay yeah he's more powerful than i am and i'm kind of at a loss here which for some may be true but if you also believe that the knowledge of the lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea then you're going to have to believe that most of those knees bowing and tongues confessing is actually based on the fact that the Bible says every tongue that confesses that Jesus is Lord is from the Spirit, ergo it's real conversion. Did you get all that? At the name of Christ, a.k.a. upon Christ being shown to people and it transforming them, everyone will confess, yes, I am a believer. He meets you where you are and he shows you kindness when it's undeserved. That's part of it. Their confession of Christ isn't because he came down on them like a ton of bricks. He already changed their heart so that they desire him. It's an outlook at the end of the day. It's not that God doesn't judge. It's not that God won't destroy the wicked. It's that your posture as finite man is so bent on kind of like having an in on God's judgment as opposed to doing your job, which is to be Christ's hands and feet in love. So like, I don't know if this makes any sense to the point, but let me let me tell you a tale here. I got a little story. It's a little theological and heady, so just bear with me best you can. In Recon, there's a belief that I actually adhere to it. Let's just stick with me though. The Garden of Gethsemane prayer that Jesus prayed, where he said, please take this cup from me, nevertheless, not by my will, but thine, was actually referring to, like the cup was being referred to The cup was not the crucifixion. The cup was actually spending eternity in hell. Because if it was just the crucifixion and Christ said, please take this cup from me. I mean, he did die on the cross still. So that would mean the father disregarded his son's request. Ergo, there is actual schism or slash disunity, a a, a battle of wills, a contrarianism of wills within the Godhead. And that cannot happen we know that can't happen so that's why the cup could not have been referring to the crucifixion and going through like all of that it was actually please do not leave my soul in hell which would also go through the messianic psalm like please do not leave my soul in hell david rose like um he will not suffer me to spend you know eternity in hell i forget the exact wording of that but it does go back to messianic psalm and so it, it makes sense to me a lot of people don't like that though because they don't want to entertain the idea that eternity in hell was ever on the table for the lord jesus christ and like okay maybe like it never was because god knew that he was going to pray the prayer and yada yada but like that aside i think that's an airtight interpretation i know a lot of people will be like well no because christ said but nevertheless not by my will but thine therefore he was okay with god doing something other than he prayed for. So he kind of was still on the same page as God. So there was no schism in the father. No, that's just the same as God saying, well, if you don't want to do what I want to do, I will submit to the hierarchy in the Godhead. That was just honoring the authority in the Godhead. So anyway, moving on though, from that, just that's what a lot of recons do believe. And I think it, it makes sense. Okay. But I think they believe that Mostly because they want to know something somebody else doesn't. Like, here's the thing. I think a strength of recons is that they will pursue a thread all the way to the skein of yarn. They're not going to be content with, oh, well, I know enough and I'm okay with the mysteries. They're not okay with the mysteries. They want to search out the matter as a king. But at the same time, there are mysteries that will remain mysteries. And that's where it begins to be a problem where they're not content with not knowing things. Anyway, that's a little bit off the topic. Just take that information about Gethsemane and move on to the second point. So if recons believe that, they should also believe something else. Their whole shtick is there cannot be schism within the Godhead. So God had to answer Jesus's request, which means that he had to have answered something that didn't happen because the cup was taken. Therefore, the other prayer that Christ prayed right after that was actually on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. P.S. There was actually no caveat with, nevertheless, not by my will, but thine. There was no caveat. It was just, Father, forgive them. No, please. No, if it were possible. None of that. So this was like, yo, you're doing this. I am, I am in cahoots with you, Father. So, crickets, frankly. Like, I've never heard a sermon about that. I've never heard a sermon that might entertain the idea that there were some people, at least two, because he says them, at least two people, maybe more, likely more, that Christ had in mind on the cross that that were directly involved with the crucifixion in some way that were forgiven and saved. Now, I know a lot of people would say that the them is actually talking about the elect because, you know, in in the spiritual realm, the elect put Christ on the cross because that's who he came to save and died for. But... At the same time, A, there was the centurion or whatever who said this man was the son of God and kind of changed his tune at the last minute. B, there was a thief on the cross. We're going to get to that. And C, I don't think that you can deduce that level of reading into things from the text necessarily. I don't doubt that Christ prayed for his elect, but he also did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, he did that already in another prayer. He said, I pray for them. I pray not for the world and that whole thing that's in John. So I don't know. I think it's three different prayers and the prayer about I pray not for them and the Father forgive them prayer are actually about two different people. But nevertheless, I have never heard a sermon about who that prayer was about on the cross because I don't think that... Recons want to entertain the idea that it could have been about people who did the unforgivable, quote unquote, because they have a long list of unforgivable sins. They do. I hope you stuck with me because my point is anytime it comes to relationships, anytime it comes to a doctrine about Christ. Loving the unlovable, it gets really difficult for the recons to decipher through. They can deal with the Garden of Gethsemane stuff with Jesus and the Godhead and all this like, you know, otherworldly kind of interpretations because they like all of that hard stuff. They want to split the hairs because doctrinal purity is everything. But when it comes to the fact that it's conceivable that Christ could have been praying for a very wicked person, they don't know what to do with that because it doesn't follow their script. I happen to think both are true, like I said. I think that he was praying for hell eternal to take, be taken away, and it was because he didn't spend eternity in hell. His eternal nature satisfied hell with the dip of his toe that he had in it. B, that Christ was talking about certain people that were directly involved in the crucifixion, we don't know who, and they were pardoned. If we didn't have inside information about the thief on the cross with, like, the fact that he said, Lord, remember me. And then Christ says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. We would have thought that he went to hell. Because that's all we have to go by. We shouldn't be judging the heart like that. But that's what we would have thought. Because the outward actions, right? Just like Castro, we know, went to hell. Question mark. Just like we know Hitler went to hell, right? Question mark. Just like we know Stalin went to hell, right? Question mark. And I'm saying this why Christ said not to judge someone's eternal state. Yes, you know them by their fruits, but their fruits determine their standing before God in that moment and how far they have fallen, especially if they are a child of God and they've just slid away. You know them by their fruits. Okay, you're you're suffering from lethargy right now. You're suffering from pride. You're suffering from this, that, and the other. Like you could still be saved, but you'll know where they're at by what they're doing because that will best reflect how they view God at that moment but you can't judge someone's eternal state because you don't know in the heart of hearts and the deathbed hour that they sat there laid there whatever you don't know if everything that they've heard along the path of life finally illuminated in their minds and they were like oh my gosh I was a wretch please remember me in paradise When you're going there, like the thief, like we don't know. We don't actually know. Greek can't fathom that. They have to know. Granted, I think God works in certain patterns that we can depend upon. And he doesn't normally work like that. It is normal that someone will come to a conversion experience in their lifetime with a pretty good set of time ahead of them to do stuff to show their love. But it's not impossible and we have that from the thief so it is so important not to be judging someone's eternal state because you don't know what thief on the cross experience any of the wickedest people you know might have and when you say oh well the likelihood i know the likelihood but are you really going to reduce god to a formula i mean he made the sun stand still at one point remember that part that totally went against all formula it defied physics so if he could do that he could save the Hitler he saved the Manasseh go read it this is the bottom line when you say things like well we know Hitler for example went to hell because his actions proved that just for arguments sake that's a dangerous slope It splits hairs, I know, but it's a dangerous slope because then you are hinging salvation upon your actions. Yes, I know the likelihood. I just said that. So don't quote me wrong here. What I'm saying is that for the sake of where the recons go wrong, it's very dangerous to start hinging salvation on actions. And furthermore, we're talking about worth at the beginning of this, there's Always, if you start that slippery slope about, oh, well, the likelihood in this, you start down the path of there is a particular sin as you go down like, oh, this sin, then this is the worst sin, then this is a worse sin than that. There's some point of unforgivable sin. Footnote, the actual unforgivable sin is unbelief in Christ. If you die in that state, it's not forgivable. So there's no like, oh, he's a homosexual. He's not forgiven. He can't be forgiven. There's none of that. They have a hierarchy of sins, is my bottom line here. They have a hierarchy of once you reach this threshold, then you know, because they've done that thing. So, flip it around. Because there's a threshold where you can drop below the point of return, you must make sure that you are so far above that by doing stuff. You have to be Calvin level. You have to be politically active enough that we've put our stamp of recon approval on it to avoid that. So it's all about the karma scale. Here's an interesting thing, though. After all that, the caveat is that half the stuff they say they're going to do to change the world isn't anything right home about. I wrote a book about democracy versus a republic. Yay. And I just advertised it to the people that already agree with me. Like, and I've changed the world. That's like the extent of it. This is where the inconsistency really shows. You're nothing if you're not politically active or involved, but then the definition of politically active and involved is nothing. First of all, second of all, anyone who actually gets actually politically involved is often shunned for compromising. My brother was involved in politics for years, like eight to 12 years, depending on when you think he started, um, long term, (laughs) and- People would just go on about him about any decision he made because it wasn't recon enough because he dared to listen to the opposing side's point of view and actually have a reasonable conversation about it with them. Dared to treat people like human beings. So you know when he got fed up one day, he's like, all right, so-and-so with the biggest mouth, why don't you run for chairman because we have a vacant seat? You're always talking about better plans and whatever than I could do. Why don't you go ahead and do it? You know the guy lasted a freaking week, one week, seven days, and he stepped down and he's like, the heck with this? I can't work with these people. Why couldn't you work with these people? Was it because you couldn't work with them, or was it because they just wouldn't listen to your fire and brimstone all the time? Because you're just bashing them on the head, the second they don't listen to you, and you're out of there. You wonder why the culture's dying, because people like you with bark and no bite. You would rather curse the darkness, You get an echo chamber cheerleading squad to tell you that you're making history, just because you're telling people on your own side what they already know. Let me tell you another story. Remember the school shooting in Tennessee? We actually know people who live out there. Number of things surrounding that. Number one, recons that we were around said how, well, they were just asking for it because they didn't have a standing militia in the community slash none of their teachers were armed. So they became a political agenda. That's championing culture, isn't it? Christian Recon Twitter had a freaking appendix explosion after they found out that the school actually raised money to give the shooter a funeral. Not because they were a great person, because the person who was the shooter, the, the the criminal, she or he turned into a she, I forget exactly how that went down, was actually a former student of the school. And the parents were heartbroken because he, she, whatever, left the faith. And the school decided to honor the parents, to honor this image bearer of God, although corrupted, by giving them a funeral. And like I said, Recon Twinner had, had an explosion over it because how dare they not be a hardliner. You know, I can't say I'd be able to do that, certainly. There's a lot of pain involved, especially if some of those people who raised the money had kids shot. But what about taking on the challenge of turning the other cheek? Kreegon has no idea what that means. So yeah, the big cultural reform is um, make sure that everyone feels a whole bunch worse than they really do, like the parents of that shooter, and make sure that everyone knows that they They chose to have their kids shot to death because they didn't do this political thing that you thought was best for them. That's real love, let me tell you. Another recon subgroup that is run by a guy who shall remain nameless, but who rhymes with Thug Dilson, wanted to take over this little podunk town in Idaho. Basically, all they've done is start a school and an online bookstore and yell at people on social media, which anyone could do so it doesn't stand out. But there was a thing a number of months ago where in this podunk town four college kids were killed in their dorms and it's a podunk town it's like a little country-ish town as far as I understand it and the shooter was caught and whatever or murderer I don't know if it was a shooter particularly but this was a great opportunity for these so-called recons who are going to take over the world and champion for Christ to say anything on their social medias, on their blogs, you know, whatever they're doing, whatever they think they're making a difference about. Crickets, let me tell you, crickets. They didn't say a damn thing. Why? I'm not exactly sure, to be honest. But it didn't fit what their agenda was. Their agenda was over here, but they couldn't extend a charity to when it was needed over here. They couldn't change their course of action. It didn't fit the bill. There wasn't even a commentary on the murderer, like, I hope justice is served. Like, that would have made sense for a recon. They didn't even do that. But wouldn't that have been political involvement? Like, this is literally something on the news. Wouldn't you say something about it? But no. So, again, it's like they crucify you for not being politically involved. But when you are politically involved, like my brother, it's too much work and you're compromising. And so their idea of political involvement is just having an opinion about the things that you should have an opinion about. You'll get criticized for having a lack of opinion about politics. Because the stuff that Christians actually do in politics don't get soapboxes. Like people who are actually working like in a local community, you know, like alderman or supervisor or whatever, they don't get on their high horse. They're too busy actually living life. But recons, they wanna feel like they're doing something important without the headache, without the work. They want something that will go down the materialistic books of history because they don't know how else they're gonna be worth anything. They don't know what a relationship with God is, which is what makes it worth being alive. You know, a while back, my husband was at a dinner Um, I forget if it was a group of lawyers or if it was a couple of judges, but he's in that world. He's very politically active, uh, ironically, in his own way. And there was a dinner, a fundraiser, and they were all asked by the panel, like, what do you want to be remembered as? What did they hope to leave behind? And most of them had this, like, agenda, like, oh, I want to be, like... The one that everyone remembers I I fought for the Constitution. Or, oh, I want to be the one that remembers I fought for families or I fought for children or have this big, like, name tag attached to them. One guy stood out and he said, I actually just want to do my job well. And he said, I don't think anyone can be remembered for a thing if they do their job properly because they're going to be serving in the capacities that are set before them. They can't just predetermine what they're about to do, they have to do what's right in the moment. That's the correct mentality. If you're trying to usher in some self-ordained mission, you're going to have to compromise little tasks along the way. Baruch was Jeremiah's right-hand man guy. He's only mentioned a few times in passing because Jeremiah's the top dog, but he's mentioned in Jeremiah 45, pretty extensively for Baruch anyway, a couple verses, wow. Baruch decides the heck with being a sidekick You don't hear Baruch's direct quote, but based on what God answers him, that's what he was saying. I want to do something great. I'm sick of being his grunt. God says, who the hell are you? I could level this whole entire town that you're working to restore if I felt like it. Who are you? You think you're going to be remembered for doing any of this? This big change? Like Jeremiah is not going to be remembered for anything he did. It's going to be about me. So stop it with your complaining. Technically, you're a nobody, ironically, but like, it's not about what great materialistic historical feats you do. It's about obedience. God says you think you're somebody, you think any success that you have is because you did it. The question is, can you handle being the Baruch or do you have to always be the Jeremiah? That's a question for recons. Recons probably should hate Jeremiah. You know why? Because he preached to God's people that they'd better accept God's judgment on them for disobedience and stop trying to change their surroundings because God's not going to have it. He literally told them, hey, stop trying to better the situation because this is your lot in life. Take it, turn from your wicked ways, and that's the way unto change. So what does the Bible actually say about a new heaven and a new earth? Because that's the whole big thing. One thing he says is he makes all things new. He does, not us. So that new heaven and new earth, God ushers in. Baruch. Remember that part. None of your success, none of Jeremiah's success is because you did anything. It's because God decided not to squash you. And new heaven, new earth, you want to know what else is new? Christ said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. It wasn't new in the sense that it wasn't in the Old Testament ever, but it was newly revealed in Christ. It wasn't recognized to its fullest potential, if you will, until the New Testament when Christ incarnate came. Christ was a living example of that and it rocked everyone's world. To come full circle, back to the opening line about artificial worth, artificial worthlessness. Recons will give you artificial worth by patting you on the back for arriving someplace or having an opinion about something on the internet. And then give you artificial worthlessness by downplaying what God says your value is rooted in. It's not enough that Christ loved you. God the Father isn't pleased to have you because of what Christ did. He's only pleased with how well you can sideline Christ trying not to be sidelined rewind that, listen to it again. That's a horrific place to be.